0: Welcome to episode 108 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this week we actually did quite a bit of that. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars, and hopefully it's clear wherever you are listening from. How was your week, Shane?
1: Uh, It was good. I I had some ups, and I had some downs, and uh, all from an astronomy perspective. I uh, see- I oh,
0: see. I see. So, I I usually make up some show notes. Some of them are more extensive than others. Shane has put in um, quite a bit of show notes, which is unusual for Shane. Usually, he's he's not uh, putting in as many show notes. And the first thing I see is horror story.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I usually am pretty scant on on the uh, notes. I like to come in and surprise you. Um, no, it's good. But, uh, you know, I, this week I, ha- I had quite a few things and I, I don't want to miss uh, uh, any of them. But yeah, the horror story is, is the down of the week by far. Um, do you want me to get into that?
0: Yeah, let's <laughs> like, I got to know. Like I, I read that last <laughs> night and it didn't keep me up. But if I had been awake, that's what, what I would have been thinking about.
1: Yeah. So uh, to start this off, my little dog uh, has some health issues lately. Uh, we're dealing with them. She's progressing, I think, fairly well. But a side result of it is uh, she's kind of cranky, and she is waking up at about five in the morning. Right. Um, so it's you know that task of waking up with the dog falls onto my shoulders. So me and me and the dog get up. I let her out. I feed her, and she usually just falls asleep. However, I can't fall back asleep. You know, once I'm awake, the engine is started, and and I can't be. I, I just cannot close my eyes and fall back asleep until later in the day. Um, so, you know, what I do at that time of the morning is I read or, you know, do some errands around the house, excuse me. Well, that day I decided I'm going to, this was like Tuesday, I think Monday or Tuesday. Um, I'm going to work on my, uh, my little Takahashi 76. It was on the Mount in the living room. And, um, Uh, The issue is that I I have a red dot finder mounted just kind of like it's it's right on the focuser. So it's Mm -hmm. offset from the eyepiece. But the way that I have it mounted um, it uh, like the the focuser wheel, especially the uh, the uh, fine focus wheel almost makes contact with the mount saddle so it's because it's very close like it it's kind of annoying actually so i thought i'm just going to spin this around spin the telescope tube around and then you know the fine focus will be on the outside i'll be happy yeah no problem well the issue with that is now the red dot finder is obstructed by the saddle knobs that tighten the clamp on my uh dovetail so i thought well darn it how do i solve this and i i quickly thought the easiest approach here is now just to swing the clamp upside down, basically. So like your tensioning knobs are on the bottom and then they're out of the way. So okay. I did that. That sounds simple. Yeah. Sounds simple. Not a good thing to do. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I do not. So the, one of the reasons I thought I should share this horror story is uh, so nobody else does what I've done. Um, <laughs> Don't do so... what
0: Johnny Don't does.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so the issue with this. So, the, the tightening clamps or the, the screws or bolts or whatever you want to call them are on the bottom. So gravity is now working against me as opposed to working with me, right? Mm. So, you know, you rest your telescope in there and then you tighten it up. But now instead of just coming down easily on a telescope that's resting in the saddle, yeah. the telescope is resting on the clamp that's now trying to move up to secure it. Yeah, And uh, if it's not perfectly aligned, it may feel like you've gotten it, But then one slight movement loosens it. Um, So anyway, I put it on there. It seemed great. No more obstruction. I was really, really happy. Um, So this is, you know, again, at 530 in the morning. Now, the time is also important. Uh, I don't think very well when I'm up early and I don't have caffeine flowing through my blood. And uh, there is zero caffeine at this point. So... Uh, I get ready for work, uh, you know, still working from home due to the pandemic, come up at about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning uh, to have a coffee. And um, I noticed like I had my, I didn't like the angle of the telescope because my um, gravity now was working. I had an eyepiece in the, in the fo- uh, diagonal, which was in the focuser. Uh, so I just changed the angle of it uh, just mm. so there wasn't as much stress on the eyepiece. Yeah. and uh, walked away and I hear a bang Oh! <laughs> and I turn around and the Takahashi's on the floor
0: oh no
1: the red dot finder like blew right out of the focuser like the oh. screws blew right out no. it was like super loose uh, I had my Leica aspheric <laughs> astroph- zoom Uh, it blew out of so it has an (laughs) adapter uh, because because it's made for a a, like a spotting scope and so you need an adapter to use it with an astronomy telescope so it blew out of the adapter oh um what else happened oh the faberge
0: eggs you had balanced neatly on i mean this is just bad
1: the 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 beta t2 uh, zeiss prism uh, it blew out the, it blew out of the telescope um, uh, visual back. Uh, I, I was distraught. I was beside myself. I, like it was almost it was just awful. So uh, I grabbed the telescope first, uh, pull off the dust cap because my biggest fear is the glass is shattered inside the telescope. Pull off the dust cap, glass is pristine no mm-hmm.
0: issues
1: there Good. yeah so whew, a sigh of uh, relief check the focuser for like the the shaft to see if it's bent or anything like that no bends it's perfect um the only issue with the telescope at that point was there is a scratch uh on the dew shield which annoys the heck out of me i take outstanding care of my stuff so any you know little imperfection drives me nuts but you know, it could have been far worse. Um, so anyway, I pick up the Leica. All of that glass is okay as well. Um, the, uh, the adapter wasn't broken. It just, it has three nylon screws that hold the eyepiece in. So that was able to be uh, reconstructed. Um, but the Leica has an, an adjustable eye cup to adjust mm. for eye relief. That had yep. busted. Um, oh, no. So I contacted Leica. They're sending me new ones for free. Oh, wow. Um, So got got around that. That was nice. Um, the red dot finder, you know, I tightened it up. That was okay. But the screws that came with the base were like, there's only like maybe one thread holding it to the telescope. So it, while it blew out, it really didn't cause any damage. I was able to put it back on and I used you know, screws that uh, went far deeper uh, into the thread. So it's much more secure. So that was okay. Um, so after pretty much ruining my, the rest of my morning, I, I, uh, I was planning to observe that night anyway. So I thought, well, that'll be the true test to see if I'm still collimated, to see if uh, there's any other issues that aren't you know necessarily visible. Um, so I took it out that night and lo and behold, I had a great night observing doubles. There was really no harm at the end of the day to the telescope. Uh, so I got away exceptionally lucky. Um, my wall that the telescope was beside, not so lucky. There's some gouges in the drywall, <laughs> which, um, you know, is unfortunate, but we're, we're planning on painting the house, uh, in the near term anyway. So, uh, you know, that, uh, that damage will be taken care of, but, um, anyway, to sum it up, I got away lucky. Don't put your telescope on a mount where, you know, when you're applying the pressure from the bottom. Uh, you know, spin that saddle around. So the pressure is applied from the top. Yeah. Um, Cause you're just, you know, you're more likely to get that thing seated in there properly and secured. And then no matter what, when you put your telescope on a side mount like this or any kind of mount, you know, before you take your hands off that telescope, just, you know, move it around a little bit, see if you can loosen it, make sure yeah. it is secure because um, you know, had that been outside on my cement patio, that telescope would be destroyed. You know, I'm I'm quite certain that the objective would have shattered. You know, at at that because uh, that's about a three foot fall, maybe a four foot fall. Um, you know, I would have I would have been uh, in rough shape. And you know, I think even when it fell against the wall, the wall probably broke some of that fall, um, which helped you know maintain like or not cause any serious damage. So hmm. that's my horror story, Chris. Uh, yeah, well, I think, I, I think I, it
0: qualifies. <laughs> I think it does. Yeah, I, I was fortunate. I never had that happen. And I used to mount my telescope that way. And uh, a friend of my, my friend, Tim, um, who was, uh, he was a motorcycle mechanic, and very mechanically inclined, I am not mechanically inclined at all. Um, anyway, especially compared to somebody like that. And I remember one of the first times I went observing with him, he watched me mount the scope. And either that time or the next time he was like, what are you doing? You can't like, like this, like the laws of physics do not work this way. Like, like you're, you're getting away with it every time you do that. And so I was like, what do you mean? And so you explained it all kind of like you've, you've gone through here. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, okay. So I'm always a little bit, uh, well, I'm always careful to try to not mount it that way, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things. So, well, that's good anyway. I'm glad that, uh. There was no, uh, sort of worse for wear. So how were the doubles? How were the double star observing?
1: Yeah, it was good. Um, I, I looked at quite a few in Leo. I should have grabbed my notes actually. Um, there was, uh, there's two sets that stand out in particular. It's uh, 83 Leo. Um, and then the other one I think is uh, Tau or T A T A U Tau Leo. Um, So what's kind of neat about these is uh, like, they're just two individual pairs, but they're, they're in a line of stars. So there's three other stars. So Mm -hmm. I think it was like one star 83 Leo, one star uh, uh, Leo tau or tau Leo, and then two stars Uh, kind of in this, you know, basic line um so all of that was quite pretty to look at and in one field of view you got all of that um like it wasn't very wide I'm trying to think what power and eyepieces I was using uh I think I was using some orthos that night so my field of view wasn't uh you know spectacular um but they were quite pretty to look at um you know and one thing so you know I've now had the TAC for about a year just like you've had your TAC 100 for about a year Um, But really all of last year, as our listeners know, we we were basically looking at the planets, you know, from our backyards. Um, So this spring, I've really just been looking exclusively at double stars uh, for the first time, essentially, with this telescope. And I mentioned this to you last night when we were texting, but this telescope, I I feel it shows uh, the most star color of any telescope that I've looked through. Yeah. star color can be fleeting or difficult to detect. I've found it at least in the past. Yeah. And when I've observed doubles in the past, you know, I, I always write down, um, you know, obviously like what I see. So, you know, how bright is one compared to the other? You know, how wide is the separation? Um, is there anything interesting about the star field or just about the double alignment? Um, and then if there's color, I'm always trying to observe color and then note that. And oftentimes I go inside thinking that the pair was two white stars and then I read a description that one is a faint orange or a pale yellow or a blue or whatever, Uh, but I'm not seeing it. Uh, At least not every time. Yeah. Uh, But I, with this tack, every single time I've observed a double, uh, you know, I've noted color if I see it. And then when I go to check my notes it's hundred percent accurate every time. Uh, Like Mm. I'm seeing the color that I'm supposed to see. Wow! um, And maybe it's just sampling bias, right? Like maybe the the doubles that I've been looking at just have, uh, you know, more pronounced color or easier color to detect. Um, But, you know, for now, I'll say that I'm really impressed. Um, I've I've had a lot of fun observing doubles this spring. And really all I'm doing is working through the uh, RASC uh, list. That's uh, readily available on RASC.ca. Anybody can grab it. Um, there's a number of resources if you want to work through that double star list. And, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm like I say, I'm really enjoying it.
0: Cool. Cool. And yeah. you were saying there was also uh and you sent you sent me the thread. I, I took a brief, a brief look at this thread on uh lot, long focal length, uh, telescopes, I think, or filters or was it both?
1: Well, there's a, yeah, there, I guess there's a couple threads. Um, one just kind of a PB or, uh, you yeah, uh, what is it, uh, A public service announcement, PSA. (laughs) Um, There's a thread on cloudy nights uh, that has indicated astronomy filters um, are are, are increasing and and in many cases have increased by about 30% uh, Mm -hmm. in price. Um, So like a a two-inch filter, like I think they go for about, like a Lumicon is around 200 US dollars, I think. So a 30% increase is, is pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, so if this is, uh, if this is like the new thing or the new price for filters and you're thinking about maybe getting a filter, uh, it's probably worth checking your, your favorite astronomy store to see if they have anything in stock, maybe at like the, you know, prices that we're used to up until this point, mm. uh, because in a month or six or whatever it might be, like when existing stock is depleted, uh, you might be paying more for filters. So um again, you know, check Cloudy Nights, read the thread yourself. I don't know if this is 100% true, but it looked pretty accurate from what I read.
0: Huh, must be tied into like the uh, 10-year bond yield or something. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um but yeah, then there was another thread on um uh, long focal length telescopes uh and it was trying to provide some a little bit of science behind the theory. Uh, that there's you know increased depth of focus but there's this more so what this thread was pointed at is there's been this long-standing I guess debate um, that some people that really love long focal length telescopes say it helps get you through times of bad seeing that if you have a uh, 100 millimeter f7 and a 100 millimeter f20 uh, the f20 will do better on nights of poor seeing compared to, the other one, the, the, the shorter focal length telescope. Um, but like I say, there's been a lot of debate over this and there still is, uh, but I found this thread to be very interesting because it, it gets in, it's very analytical, um, as to how this could happen or why this happens. And then, uh, you know, people were debating back and forth throughout the thread. Um, so I've, you know, I've always been interested in long focal length telescopes, which is why I have some of these older ones because, um, Uh, You know, newer, long focal length telescopes are just not easy to find. Um, So I think what I'm going to do this summer as a side project. I have two 76 meter telescopes, uh, an F7.5 and then like an F15 or F16, whatever it is. Um, I think I'll try to do some side by side observing with those uh, this summer uh, just to see the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other interesting thing that's in this thread is it talks about like the use of a Barlow. Um, that if you use, uh, you know, a Barlow to achieve, say, an F-15 focal length, it's not the same as a true F-15 focal length telescope. And and they get into the details about why right. that is stating, you know, the, the Barlow really just amplifies the kind of the issues or the errors that are inherent in small focal length telescopes. Yeah. Um, anyway, I thought it was a, fan, a fascinating thread. Um, you know, I encourage people, if you have any kind of interest in, uh, the impacts of different focal lengths, uh, check it out. It's in the refractor forum. So it's definitely from a refractor standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, but there is some talk about Cassegrains and maxudovs in that thread as well. Um, yeah. Anyway, I thought I'd pass it on to you, Chris, because I think, uh, you know, you kind of enjoy that sort of stuff as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. And, and I saw that you, you did some work, um, some planned work. On a on another telescope, your is it a Tasco seventy six millimeter f sixteen? Approximately. Yes, it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a Tasco ten te is the model. Um, okay. And, and uh, I think mine is from the fifties. Actually, it might be one of the earlier ones made. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but um, it, it's a really good telescope from the limited use uh, that I've uh, that I've had it out. Um, as usual, the, like the mount and the tripod that came with it are a little shaky. They, it needs work. Mm-hmm. Um, although I got to say, you know, as far as some of these old telescopes go, this tripod amount is among the better ones, um, mm-hmm. to handle such a large telescope. So, uh, I was perusing, uh, the classic telescope thread in cloudy nights and somebody else in the U S uh, has a, a, TASCO 10 TE. And what he did is uh, he put modern rings on it so that he could you know, then put a Vixen dovetail on it and use any modern mount, which intrigued me because then that gets me around the shakiness of the original mount. Um, but more so, what he did is he, um, he attached a modern two inch focuser to his. Um, and why that's important is the optics in these old telescopes are really, really, really good in my opinion. Um, the, there's two things that suffer, maybe three things. The finders are typically garbage. You know, they, mm-hmm. they really don't help you. Um, I already just talked about the mountain tripod. They're usually a weak point, but the other thing that is kind of frustrating when you get used to modern equipment is the focuser. Uh, they're always single speed and sometimes they're not very smooth. Sometimes they don't handle weight very well. And oftentimes I find there's a little bit of movement in there, you know, so you're not necessarily squared up uh, when you put an eyepiece in. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I saw this Cloudy Nights thread of of putting a modern focuser on, it really intrigued me. On top of this, it's a non-destructive modification. So you maintain the integrity of the original telescope, the original TASCO. Like if I ever want to revert it back uh, to the old focuser, it's just a matter of unscrewing the modern one and screwing in the old one. Uh, which is pretty cool because sometimes with these uh, modernization of the telescope, you're cutting things or drilling and uh, you know, you lose the original aspect of it. So what it is, Chris, is uh, I think it's the same focuser you put in your uh, ST80. It's like, it's a GSO focuser um, with a, what is it? An 84 or 86 millimeter. I don't know what the heck it is.
0: Uh, Yeah. It's like 86 and a half or some weird. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what's interesting about that is the inner, uh, the inner portion of that focuser just perfectly fits over top of the Tasco 10E, almost Mm. like it was made for it. It's bizarre. And what's even more bizarre to me is the screw holes line up perfectly, like almost like that's a standard. Um, so, um, I was really happy. So what I did too, like just to play on our uh, buying used gear episode that we did a few weeks ago is I put a want ad on Astro buy sell. Uh, dot com here in canada just indicating that i'm looking for this particular focuser and i got two replies in about an hour of people Mm. that had these focusers um so this is a a two-speed crayford rotatable focuser um i think i got it for like 130 canadian dollars so pretty good price it's like brand new um and it works really well now two inches eh? I'm not sure I'll ever put a two inch eyepiece in this telescope. It seems a little, uh, you know, unnecessary, yeah. um, but it gives me a modern focuser, which will just, you know, do wonders for that telescope. Because my real intent with this telescope is that it will become uh, more of my winter telescope that I leave in the garage yeah. and uh, having a Crayford focuser. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of those um, because no. they just don't handle weight very well. Yeah. But they're really good in cold weather, typically, because there's no grease in there, as opposed yeah. to a rack and pinion, uh, you know, that grease can lock up and, and become a problem when it gets cold
0: outside. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, it works fine. Like mine, mine's worked great.
1: Yeah. One other thing, too, maybe I'll mention while we're on the topic of, of this Tasco, um, is I, I also bought a Telrad for it. And I know we talked about uh, finders recently, too, and, and I said I'm not a fan of Telrad's. Yeah. Um, but uh somebody on Astro by Sell was selling a brand new Telrad with two bases for 40 Canadian dollars, which is huh. you know a phenomenal deal. Um and with a long focal length telescope like this Tasco, you need some kind of finder to get you into the right area because the, the field of view is quite narrow. Yep. Um, so I'm going to get a riser for the Telrad so that it lifts it up a little bit and it's a little more comfortable to use. And uh I should have uh, I think I'll have this Tasco you know, operating here real quickly, uh, uh, for, for first light with all of the modifications. Thanks. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, how was your week? Yeah, I know you got up to a whole bunch of, uh, fiddling around with the mini Borg and oh, bad place some orders and you Did got, I? You, Christmas came in April.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, not, I don't know if Christmas is the right word. I got a box of, of parts, um, I don't, the most expensive thing I bought was a moon filter. So that, that kind of gives you an indication of the level of stuff I was getting. Um, most everything else was just like little brackets and adapters and screws literally and, uh, but a really inexpensive 32 millimeter Plossel. Um, the, the, I don't know if it's GSO, maybe it's GSO anyway. Um, but uh, but yeah, I got a whole whole pile of stuff. But the other thing I did is I, I wanted to try to observe that comet atlas. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I ended up going out, I guess it was Wednesday morning. I think it was Wednesday morning. And uh, man, I, I woke up, checked my watch, uh, which has weather reading on it. It was showing minus one. I thought, okay, well, that's not so bad. And I walked downstairs and my uh, weather station said it was zero. So I'm like, okay. Well, the the forecasting is is from the other side of the city, and there can sometimes be a difference of a few few degrees there. So I'm like, okay, well that's not so bad. And so I just drove out to my my nearby site, which is literally I think it's like an eight or nine minute drive from my house. It's and not that far. So if it was super clear and I put a flagpole on top of my house, I could I could see that. I'm not even that far from my house. Um, I get out there and get out of the car, and I'm like, it is way colder out here. (laughs) Like, so it was minus five or minus six or something like that. Um, just, just that close to my house. It was, it was about six degrees colder, um, below zero. I feel like that's, that's pretty significant. Uh, anyway, so I got out and I was doing stuff without my gloves on and my hands got rather cold and like, I hadn't bothered checking the car uh, thermometer on the way out there. And, uh, anyhow, so, so that kind of messed up my plans. The other thing was, is that on the way out about halfway out there, out of the corner of my eye, I could see like this weird kind of cloud formation in the sky. And I was like, is that Aurora? And so I kind of stopped on the road and sort of looked up and I'm like, yeah, that's Aurora. And it was like this massive, massive Aurora display. It was huge. And oh. so I think I got it rated right its peak. And when I get out there, I watch, I spent most of the time just watching this Aurora, um, which, which I think for most people, this would have been. Like this, uh, one of these most uh, spectacular uh, sky watching experiences ever. Of course, we get lots of aurora, but this was actually a pretty good one, um, which was sort of worth watching. So, uh, end up watching that. I did scan for the comet with my binoculars, but um, that area of the sky—it was it was in Aquila when I was looking, and uh, which was in the south uh, west from my location. That was the only area of the sky that kind of had like some thin cloud over it. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think it was just not going to be, uh, going to be visible. And then the Aurora, like when the Aurora was kicking up, it was like things like the, the ground was almost like lighting up kind of thing. It was, it was very, very big and bright.
1: Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're, we're probably getting into a little bit
0: more auroral activity just as the,
1: uh, activity on the sun starts to pick up. So I'm sure we'll, we'll, you know, you and I will be observing this more and we'll probably hear more reports of it as well.
0: Yeah, it almost gets, like, I don't know, like, a lot of people live in places where you don't see the aurora, and uh, we're not even that far north. I was really surprised how much aurora was here, but um, after I moved here, it's about 10 or 12 years ago now, um, I found it we're, like, in one of the aurora concentration areas. So, I, I think it tends to concentrate down towards somewhere between the border of Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba is, like, that's like the southern reaches of this uh, aurora concentration. And then from there, it kind of goes up. So if you're even at the same uh, latitude over on like uh, like Vancouver Island, you're just not going to see it. And again, like over way on the east coast where I'm from, um, you know, I, I've observed not too many degrees further south than where we are. And you would just get it as a postage stamp on the horizon. Whereas here, I mean, it's stretched, I would say it's stretched, 35, 40 degrees up. Um, It didn't start until about 10 degrees above the horizon. And then it was stretching across, I don't know, maybe like a hundred degrees across the horizon. Like it was, it was massive, you know, for those wondering how big that is your fist at arm's length is 10 degrees. So um, and from, from the horizon to overhead is 90 degrees. So this was like further than that. It was really big and it had like multiple areas of activity. So it would kind of like wave like a curtain on the far right extreme. And then sort of right in the middle, there was, there was another smaller uh, curtain. I think it was just like pointed towards me or something. And, and they would kind of brighten up and, and wave and shimmer. It was pretty spectacular oh. actually um, for an Aurora display.
1: Awesome. Well, yes. you know, it, it, it's not what you were looking for, but it's still kind of a neat thing to see.
0: It, it is. And I was thinking when I was watching, I was a little bit disappointed. Ah, there's Aurora. And I'm like, you know, like some people, they go and travel and, and they want to see the Aurora. So they, they go somewhere um, really far off and, and fancy and whatever. And, and I'll, i have to drive five or 10 minutes, like literally five minutes from my house. And you could see, it. you could probably have seen it from my backyard. I've certainly seen similar ones just from my backyard uh, before, which is horribly light polluted, you know, like literally street lights and everything right there. And, and you can still see the Aurora, um, you know, even right from. From the yard, so um, it is. It is neat. It's just like we do get them um, frequently enough, and uh, you know they do. Uh, they do impede with uh, deep sky observing, which is which is what I uh, what I like to do a little bit more. So,
1: yeah. And on the topic of that comet C twenty twenty R four Atlas, you know I'm not really seeing reports like observing reports of this thing on cloudy nights or or really anywhere. And uh, checking the erith.net site, it looks like it might be dimming a little bit too. Like It is. Know, it, it, yeah, its highest magnitude was around 8, but it looks like it's maybe dropping to 9 or 10. So 10. It,
0: I see the yeah. last report was this morning, and it was coming in at 10.2.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, which is still moderately bright, but now D1 Swan, which is up in Perseus, um, is slightly brighter than than 10th magnitude. So uh, you know, it was a little flare up and, uh, you know, it, if it had kept going, you mm-hmm. know, it had gone from an estimated magnitude of 12 or 13th or whatever the heck it was supposed to be to, to eight. Um, you know, if it had gone up even only one more magnitude, um, then that's a really good binocular um, comment. Uh, mm-hmm. But it just didn't, didn't quite quite get to uh, to that point. Um, but anyway, it's worth always worth uh going out, I mean, if, if it hadn't been for trying to go out and see that comet, I wouldn't have seen this uh, huge Aurora display. So there you go.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Let's see, what else? Um, yeah, this parts box arrive. We got a 25% uh, moon filter. So I think it just passes. It says it passes 25% of the light, but I think it must just block 25% of light. It still seemed fairly bright when I look through it. Um, I was gonna get like a variable uh, filter that would take from, I don't know, I think it's like 10 or 15% to 40% or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but right before I placed my order, I grabbed that prism diagonal and it's not threaded.
1: No, you... no. Uh, oh, the barrel's not threaded.
0: The barrel's not threaded. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a big deal, but then um, I stacked a couple of filters and put them on an eyepiece because one of the things I want to do with, with that, um, prism diagonal is do more lunar planetary observing with it than anything else. So I, I, I tried to stick those in, and it was just not, I, I think it was going to not play well with that, uh, with that prism. So I think probably what I'm going to do is end up getting a few different, uh, moon filters instead of just having the variable, which is what most people seem to use. Um, I'll probably just end up with three because I was thinking probably if I observe the moon, I'm going to be observing it from home and all I'm going to be doing is observing the moon when, when I am observing it. So swapping out a few different filters to figure out which is the right one, just not going to be that big a deal. So I think that's probably what I'm going to do.
1: Mm. You know, I have a variable uh, lunar filter, like uh, neutral density filter and I, I don't like it. I just, I don't use it. I find it to be a pain. Yeah, And, uh, you know, I find like a 25%, uh, neutral density filter. Like, I guess maybe if you're doing extremely high magnification, it might be a little too dim. Maybe, uh, even that I question, like, I, I don't know, I just set it and forget it, you know, put, put on the 25%. It cuts the light and, uh, I'm usually pretty content with that.
0: Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do. That's, that's my plan. Um, last year when I was observing the moon summit, I don't observe the moon that much, I was like wearing sunglasses. I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know? So, you know, just like, who was it to Corey Hart who wore sunglasses at night? Anyway.
1: Yeah. Your, your neighbors will start talking.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. So, uh, so I ended up placing this, this order from Agena Astro systems. I think that's what it's called. And, uh, I've got no affiliation with them other than being a customer. And, uh, I'd sent them an email on, it was Friday or Sunday. I think I sent them an email on Friday or Sunday. Anyway, um, I had a few questions about what I'm trying to do is um, I was trying to turn the mini Borg into a finder scope and I wanted to attach it to my hundred millimeter Takahashi. But in order to do that, this is like the tricky part. There's no finder scope mounting holes or bracket or anything to actually attach the finder scope to uh, the TAC 100, which seems ridiculous because typically even the most inexpensive telescopes have some sort of way of attaching finder scopes to them. Um, but this is like one of those rare setups. And if you actually look into it, um, you can see tons of people kind of complaining about this, that, that, that this exact setup that I have has no way. Now, if you use the, the original Takahashi focuser, there's a couple screws, um, and you can very easily attach, uh, the, the finder scope, uh, Bracket to that uh, you have to get a special bracket. But other than that, it's not a big deal. Um, but to attach to this, um, somebody figured out just by luck that a uh, 76 millimeter uh, ID interior diameter uh, ring set by a certain manufacturer will actually fit around the feather touch focuser. Um, mm. that most people like me uh, upgrade these, these telescopes with. So the problem is, is that we get the attack um, 100 DC and then we upgrade it with the feather touch. Now, it's just like this weird coincidental thing that I just happen to already have that feather touch focuser. So, one of the biggest drawbacks to uh, to that telescope is that when you get it, it, it doesn't take 2-inch eyepieces. The very simplest solution is to get the Bader adapter and then you can put anything you want on there and I think probably that is that is the best solution because the TAC focuser is actually pretty good. But anyway, this is what I've done and I've, I've taken that TAC focuser off and put it on another telescope um, regardless. So I only have these, these two focusers and two telescopes. So anyway, um, yeah, so I end up buying this uh, mounting ring set. So I have two, so if anybody out there is looking for a 76 ID uh, ring, I have a spare one now. And then um, a bracket that I could mount to that and then uh, from that bracket, you have to get a finder scope bracket. And then you have to take the Borg Mini apart. Um, you have to take completely apart in order to get it inside that bracket. And there's like some parts you have to remove from the Borg Mini. So so that's what I spent pretty much all day yesterday doing was, was cobbling that together. I think I sent you some photos so people can see what the heck I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did get it all working. It... So I ordered this 32 millimeter Plossel because I wanted to get pretty much the widest field of view I could get out of the Borg Mini in uh, 1.25 inch mode. And um, I have a few one and a quarter inch lower power eyepieces, but I was really um, fortunate because this wasn't part of the plan that uh, that eyepiece that I ordered just happened to uh, require more out focus, and all my one and a quarters would not come to focus in it um, the way I have it set up only only that 32 millimeter and just barely there's maybe half a millimeter or a millimeter of spare focus with it
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: so so anyway but i think you you have one of the uh one of the uh, shorter uh adapters so i'd like to at some point try that and see if uh see if that w- will allow me to focus other eyepieces while i have it in finder scope mode so mm-hmm. what what i'm able to do is actually take this now and with uh Without a whole lot of effort, I can actually mount it to my uh, Takahashi FS60. So that's what I did last night for testing purposes, because the FS60 is much smaller and and easier to kind of mount and manipulate just while I'm trying to get something else working. So I had that all set up and I I sent you some photos of that showing the the 50 millimeter (laughs) finder scope mounted to a 60 millimeter telescope, which uh, I thought it looked pretty wicked. I thought it looked pretty cool.
1: It reminded me of, um, oh, gee, it was one of the many threads on Cloudy Nights that I've looked at. And I'm thinking, I think it was like a 50 millimeter telescope that somebody put like a six by 30 finder on. And it, you know, it seemed a little unnecessary to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My wife was like, why did you do this? (laughs) So, but... (laughs) But it did, it did look cool. And uh, so, yeah, why, why do it? Why, why am I doing this? Why am I just like, going through this elaborate process to get a, uh, to get a finer scope up? Well, when, when I was observing last fall, um, and when I go through these spots where, where it's almost like all I, all I do is observe planets. Um, so primarily, I'm a deep sky observer, but I'm also a planetary observer. But I don't do as much planetary observing as I want to do, and this is why. And that is that um, when I get the planet in the telescope, and I'm switching eyepieces, even when I'm when I have it on my tracking mount, which I thought would solve this problem, but it it did, but not as much as I wanted. I want the problem just completely solved. Um, I switch eyepieces and I move the telescope just enough, you know. And and the other thing is is that the Tac 100 will take, you know, very high power um i think i've been running up to 350 power on it so the field of view is just it's tiny tiny field of view and what was happening is of course that uh, in the process of just changing eyepieces and the unweighting and the weighting of the scope and and sometimes if i'm messing around with the you know something else uh, it gets just off that center when the field of view is i don't know how small that field of view is but you know it's just like i don't know like a you know just a tenth of a degree or something like that mm. um you know then then i kind of have to go to a lower power and then drop back up and you know you're really messing around a lot to get the planet back in the in the field of view and last year when we had we had like these amazing conditions for observing mars and uh and i texted mike i think i texted you as well but mike was like i gotta come see this so he like masked up and everything and the whole bit and came over and we had like this masked observing session. It was pretty wild. Um, and had some really good observations of Mars. But at one point I lost it It took me like 10 minutes to get it back. And I'm wearing this mask and I'm, you know, I'm like, kind of like, Oh, I got to get this back in. And, you know, something else was going wrong and I was like, you know, my glasses are fogging up and it was just like, I, I was really not happy with uh, with the whole way that 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 observing session went down so i kind of decided at that point i gotta get a finder working like exactly the way that i want it so that i can get a planet in the middle of the field of view in the finder scope and then um you know from switching eyepieces and whatever all i have to do is kind of just nudge on the keypad or or just manually track the the telescope back into into the center using the finder scope and then um you know, not really have to worry about uh, shuffling eyepieces and, and moving the telescope around just just like really in a small way um, in order to make those uh, planetary observations. So anyway, that, that's why I'm doing this. And uh, sort of on a, on a just a very casual, and this is kind of the downside is sometimes, you know, when you get a piece of gear, you just kind of want to casually observe. And this is not just for casual observance, for very targeted observing. The other thing is, is that, I've got it set up with an Amisi prism, a correct, uh, correctly-oriented uh, view through it, uh, which is this old prism that I have. And what that allows me to do is to go directly back and forth to star charts, and it's correctly oriented um, so that what the view that you see through the eyepiece is the view that uh, that you get on your star chart. And some of the stuff that I'm trying to figure out um, in the historical observing that I'm doing for Webb and, and some of the other... Uh, ancient astronomers or, or, or uh, antiquarian astronomers, whatever you want to call them. Um, like it's, it's difficult to, uh, to determine what fields they were looking at. So I kind of have to mark it in the star chart and then go back and forth. And if it's, if it's reversed, it's going to, I can figure it out, but it's really difficult to figure out (laughs) when, when the, uh, when the view is reversed because, uh, it's not like just finding a star cluster, um, you know, that that's marked like a messy object or something like that. Like often there's, there's nothing there. So I have to really uh, piece off uh, sometimes just a handful of stars that are widely separated. And if they're going to be reversed or upside down, or, I mean, it, it's just going to be very difficult to figure out. I shouldn't say it's going to be, I've been kind of working on this stuff for a few years and I keep thinking, I really need to get a properly mounted finder scope. The other thing is I talked about this before is that I do have an, this older um Finder scope that kind of does this, but the setup of it is poor. The only way to set it up is through a set of guide scope rings, and I, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. it. wasn't working well for me, unstable, and it was really difficult to balance. Like I sent you this photo. In a photo, it looks great, but the balance on it is horrible. It's just terribly balanced. So this way, it's like perfectly balanced. I was so happy. I couldn't believe. Like I, I loaded this finder scope up on the 60 and it looks kind of ridiculous because it's almost like having two telescopes together like that. And it was perfectly balanced. Like I, like it just perfectly balanced almost naturally. I'm hoping the uh, I'm hoping the hundred millimeter will balance uh, near as well. Um, it'll be great.
1: Hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. You know, speaking of balance, like I've been having issues with the the tax 76. Cause I, I've been wanting to use my Leica and uh, like 41 millimeter pan optic, which adds a whole lot, a bunch of weight to the, the eyepiece end. And uh, you know, it's always a struggle you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about just being able to observe and not having to worry about some of this stuff. But you know, the more we mess around, I think the more headaches we, we cause ourselves
0: sometimes. <laughs> so I have to ask you something before you get into this, it's, mm. this is very, this is like one of the strangest, you don't know this, but this is very strange. This is very strange. So okay. I spent a big part of, I was off a few days this week. Um, you know, I, I took a couple of vacation days and I wanted to uh, to have the time to kind of mess around with some of the stuff. But one of the things I was looking at is, is making a little counterbalance um, for my telescope. Did I send you those links? Or mm-hmm. you, you were just working on this on your own too?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think you sent me any links. Um, yeah, it's this weird. has just been... Yeah, it's, it's been weird. something that I've been kind of interested in, and, and uh, I've had some
0: designs floating in my head, and then I just
1: put it all together.
0: Yeah, it looks like you got something working. I didn't quite get that far, but I was getting to the point where I was going to really call it called small rig weights or something like that. Is that what you got? Did you get one of the small rig weights, or what are they?
1: Well, so um, there's, a, there's a place called Desert Sky Astro, and uh, I forget the name of the person that runs it, but he makes mounts. Uh, and i think mm. he has three different sized mounts they're alta as mounts um, they're well regarded um but one of the one of the things that he has it's called a, a qbs and i'm not sure what the q stands for but it's balancing system and um what it what it's like what it is is it's a, a vixen dovetail and it's meant to go on if you have a t mount so like um, oh i see you it. know a dual mount um, yeah you put this thing on and it has this really long bar like excuse me, um, probably about 14 inches is my guess with yes, channel yeah. down the middle. And then you attach like a two pound weight to it. It comes with the weight. Um, and, and what's nice about this thing is, is you can slide the weight up and down this rail so you can get it at the perfect point to counterbalance whatever eyepiece you have uh, in your telescope on the other side of the mount mm. um, works like, like it's a great design. It works exceptionally well for counterbalancing. But the thing is, is you need that dual mount. Now, Mm -hmm. the mount that I use typically in my backyard uh, just has one side mount on it. It's a Stellar View M2C. Um, So what I did uh, with my little tack, like I have a a four inch uh, uh, dovetail on there. I took that off, Uh, I have a seven inch dovetail which has one of those central channels down the middle. Um, So I, I put the tack on the seven inch dovetail and I put the tack all the way at the back of that dovetail. And then that gives me quite a few inches in front of the telescope or, Mm -hmm. you know, in front of the central mounting point of the telescope where I was able to attach this two pound weight. So I'm able to slide the weight. I think I have about two or three inches of travel to move that weight back and forth. It -hmm. doesn't impact the mount. Um, and it works pretty good actually. So last night I was out, Uh, for the first time using two inch wide field stuff. Like I think everybody's used to me talking about, you know, tiny monocentric field of views and orthos. Uh, but last night was like 41 millimeter panoptic 31 millimeter Nagler. Um, and part of that was, you know, just, it is nice to view, uh, things with, you know, good eye relief and wide fields, but I, I wanted to test this balance system and, uh, it worked pretty good. Um, I think I need a little more length, like maybe a 10 inch dovetail would be ideal, Mm -hmm. Um, and you still like, here's the issue when you're using smaller telescopes and you're putting big weight on there like that. Um, and this is actually a downfall of the lightweightness of the, the Takahashi's is you never really achieve a a good counterbalance because, you know, if if you just have it, um, uh, parallel to the ground, you know, I can easily align the weight so that it's balanced. But then as that angle changes, you know, as I uh, raise the telescope, um, all of a sudden it might become tail heavy again. So I have to readjust the weight. And depending on the angle of the telescope it can really impact where you need to have that counterbalance. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of a pain, um, but this counterbalance system does work and um, I'm, I'm pleased with it. Now, something else you can do, which is really simple is just go by like running ankle weights and put them on the end of your tube, you know, near, near the, uh, the lens. And then that adds a counterbalance too. And that's probably the cheapest way to do it.
0: Yeah. I've seen uh, things like that before personally, like I really don't like, um, those kind of solutions. They tend to be, um, yeah, just not very clean, you know, like, you know, it just looks like you have something and you do just something kind of like draped over, uh, the telescope and it, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. And then in my experience, typically doesn't work that great either. So I uh, usually doesn't quite uh, accomplish exactly what, what I'm looking for. Um, and then like, how do you transport those? And anyway, just, it's always going to be, Well, you
1: you put them on your ankles for, yeah, for exactly
0: yeah, <laughs> get a bit of a workout while you're getting some uh, astronomy. in. yeah, I, I don't know, like some, some of those solutions, like I've seen like beanbag solutions and stuff mm-hmm. like that before, but, uh, but just like having a nice clean little, um, like a clean little, uh, weight, uh, to choke up on the, uh, on the dovetail bar, uh, seems that that seems to be the way to go. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and you can buy, like you can buy these counterbalance weights. So it's base it's a similar weight to what I have. And I'll tweet out some photos of this uh, thing that I made um, but anyway, it, it's like a weight like what I have, but it has a like a Vixen saddle attached to it. So then you yeah. would just attach that to your dovetail and slide it around. But those are like 150 Canadian dollars, um, which is like a, to me, that's a ridiculous amount of money for a solution that doesn't need to cost nearly that much. So, yeah. you know, a little bit of DIY, um, like really any weight that can be threaded or, or has threads in it you can probably attach that to your dovetail the way I did and have yourself a little sliding counterbalance system.
0: Yeah. So what I was looking to do is, um, cause one thing I, I do want to do more of an, I, I debated getting a 31 Nagler, but, but you have one and, and I have that, uh, ST80. And, uh, once, once we kind of you know, get our vaccinations here and sounds like, sounds like uh, they're going to be able to vaccinate everybody in our region by, uh, by the end of next month at the latest Mm -hmm. they're saying. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, kind of once we, we get into uh, the early part of summer, hopefully we can be back observing together again. And uh, I'd like to be able to use that Nagler in the ST80. So I'm trying to rig it up to do that. And, and so I was looking at a counterbalance system, but then I, I think I figured out that if I, if I get another longer um, Vixen dovetail and I take uh, I have a really short dovetail that I can attach to the bottom. There's like a, there's like a tripod um, dovetail already on the ST80 that I have. Mm-hmm. And so that actually pushes, if I put a little dovetail on there on top of that, and then I put a longer dovetail on, I think I then clear the focuser. Cause the problem that, that we were running into with it is that the, uh, the dovetail could only be pushed down to the focuser and then when you put such a heavy eyepiece on such a short tube refractor, you need to choke that up on, on your mat in order to achieve balance. You need to push it, push it up. And then of course, you know, basically we were uh, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the dovetail to get the uh, to get the 31 Nagler um, to actually be balanced. And we could, I just didn't like that. I, I felt like, you know, if it was mine or a cheap eyepiece, that'd be one thing, but that telescope costs or the, the eyepiece costs several times what the telescope does. And if this whole thing goes crashing to the ground, which you know have experience in, I, I didn't want to have this, uh, have this problem with your, with your Nagler, if you were kind enough to lend it to me. Um, so anyway, um, I think I'm going to get another um, dovetail. I'm going to get like a 10 or 11 inch dovetail. Uh, like a lighter weight one and put that on my um, hundred millimeter and then take my seven inch dovetail off of uh, my other scope or that scope and put it on the st 80 on top of the other bracket or dovetail. And then uh, I think, I, I think I gain a few more inches by doing that. So uh, hmm. I think it should work. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think it should work.
1: Yeah. That sounds like a plan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anything else to add to uh, to this kind of rambling episode on Sundry Gear and other items? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, we've talked enough. Uh, thanks, Chris.
0: Yeah, and you've you've got another thank you to put out there, I think Shane. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Um, so we
1: have another new patreon uh, uh, supporter. So um, I'm just finding it here to make sure I get the name right. Uh, yeah. Uh, Joaquim, uh, thank you very much uh, for the Patreon support. Uh, again, um, you know, all of our Patreon support, um, uh, I guess donations or financial support, really just goes to cost recovery of the podcast yeah. as well as uh, potential future enhancements. Um, you know, Chris and I are always kind of scheming in the background about new things we can do that people might enjoy. Um, so anyway, we appreciate the support, uh, from Joachim and, uh, all of our other, uh, Patreons. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, also if Joachim or anybody else has any, uh, personal observations or, or, you know, experiences with the night sky, um, we'd love to hear those. Uh, we'll read them on the air. If anybody has any equipment reviews they want to send in happy to read those as well, or, uh, you know, or or any other, any other experience you have under the nighttime sky. We, uh, we love receiving uh, listener uh, stories and feedback, whatever, whatever you wish. And, uh, you know, really look forward to hearing from more of you.
1: Yeah. And the email address is actualastronomy at gmail.com or go to our website, actualastronomy.com. And there's a form there where you can submit it. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks so much, everybody.
1: Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.